Section 9 of An Inquiry Concerning the Principles of Morals. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. An Inquiry Concerning the Principles of Morals by David Hume. Section 6 of Qualities Useful to Ourselves, Part 1. It seems evident that where a quality or habit is subjected to our examination, if it appear in any respect prejudicial to the person possessed of it, or such as incapacitates him for business and action, it is instantly blamed and ranked among his faults and imperfections. Indolence, negligence, want of order and method, obstinacy, fickleness, rashness, credulity, these qualities were never esteemed by any one indifferent to a character, much less extolled as accomplishments or virtues. The prejudice resulting from them immediately strikes our eye, and gives us the sentiment of pain and disapprobation. No quality, it is allowed, is absolutely either blameable or praiseworthy. It is all according to its degree. A due medium, says the peripatetics, is the characteristic of virtue. But this medium is chiefly determined by utility. A proper celerity, for instance, and dispatch in business, is commendable. When defective, no progress is ever made in the execution of any purpose. When excessive, it engages us in precipitate and ill-concerted measures and enterprises. By such reasonings, we fix the proper and commendable mediocrity in all moral and prudential disquisitions, and never lose view of the advantages which result from any character or habit. Now, as these advantages are enjoyed by the person possessed of the character, it can never be self-love which renders the prospect of them agreeable to us, the spectators, and prompts our esteem and approbation. No force of imagination can convert us into another person, and make us fancy that we, being that person, reap benefit from those valuable qualities which belong to him. Or if it did, no celerity of imagination could immediately transport us back into ourselves, and make us love and esteem the person as different from us. Views and sentiments so opposite to known truth and to each other, could never have place at the same time in the same person. All suspicion, therefore, of selfish regards is here totally excluded. It is a quite different principle which actuates our bosom and interests us in the felicity of the person whom we contemplate. Where his natural talents and acquired abilities give us the prospect of elevation, advancement, a figure in life, prosperous success, a steady command over fortune, and the execution of great or advantageous undertakings, we are struck with such agreeable images, and feel a complacency and regard immediately arise toward him. The ideas of happiness, joy, triumph, prosperity, are connected with every circumstance of his character, and diffuse over our minds a pleasing sentiment of sympathy and humanity. Footnote one may venture to affirm that there is no human nature to whom the appearance of happiness, where envy or revenge has no place, does not give pleasure, that of misery, uneasiness. This seems inseparable from our make and constitution. 
but they are only more generous minds that are thence prompted to seek zealously the good of others, and to have a real passion for their welfare. With men of narrow and ungenerous spirits, this sympathy goes not beyond a slight feeling of the imagination, which serves only to excite sentiments of complacency or insure, and make them apply to the object either honourable or dishonourable appellations. A griping miser, for instance, praises extremely industry and frugality even in others, and sets them in his estimation above all the other virtues. He knows the good that results from them, and feels that species of happiness with a more lively sympathy than any other you could represent to him, though perhaps he would not part with a shilling to make the fortune of the industrious man whom he praises so highly. End of footnote. Let us suppose a person originally framed so as to have no manner of concern for his fellow creatures, but to regard the happiness and misery of all sensible beings with greater indifference than even two contiguous shades of the same colour. Let us suppose, if the prosperity of nations were laid on the one hand, and their ruin on the other, and he were desired to choose, that he would stand like the schoolman's ass, irresolute and undetermined between equal motives or rather, like the same ass, between two pieces of wood or marble, without any inclination or propensity to either side. The consequence, I believe, must be allowed just, that such a person, being absolutely unconcerned, either for the public good of a community, or the private utility of others, would look on every quality, however pernicious, or however beneficial, to society or to its possessor, with the same indifference as on the most common and uninteresting object. But if, instead of this fancied monster, we suppose a man to form judgment or determination in the case, there is to him a plain foundation of preference, where everything else is equal. And however cool his choice may be, if his heart be selfish, or if the persons interested be remote from him, there must still be a choice or distinction between what is useful and what is pernicious. Now this distinction is the same in all its parts with the moral distinction, whose foundation has been so often and so much in vain inquired after. The same endowments of the mind in every circumstance are agreeable to the sentiment of morals and to that of humanity. The same temper is susceptible of high degrees of the one sentiment and of the other, and the same alteration in the objects, by their nearer approach, or by connections, enlivens the one and the other. By all the rules of philosophy, therefore, we must conclude that these sentiments are originally the same, since, in each particular, even the most minute, they are governed by the same laws, and are moved by the same objects. Why do philosophers infer, with the greatest certainty, that the moon is kept in its orbit by the same force of gravity that makes bodies fall near the surface of the earth, but because these effects are, upon computation, found similar and equal. And must not this argument bring a strong conviction in moral as in natural disquisitions? To prove by any long detail that all the qualities useful to the possessor are approved of, and the contrary censured, would be superfluous. The least reflection on what is everyday experienced in life will be sufficient. We shall only mention a few instances in order to remove, if possible, all doubt and hesitation. The quality, the most necessary for the execution of any useful enterprise, is discretion, 
by which we carry a safe intercourse with others, give due attention to our own and to their character, weigh each circumstance of the business which we undertake, and employ the surest and safest means for the attainment of any end or purpose. To a Cromwell, perhaps, or a de Retz, discretion may appear an alderman-like virtue, as Dr. Swift calls it, and, being incompatible with those vast designs to which their courage and ambition prompted them, it might really, in them, be a fault or imperfection. But in the conduct of ordinary life, no virtue is the more requisite, not only to obtain success, but to avoid the most fatal miscarriages and disappointments. The greatest parts without it, as observed by an elegant writer, may be fatal to their owner, as Polyphemus, deprived of his eye, was only the more exposed on account of his enormous strength and stature. The best character, indeed, were it not rather too perfect for human nature, is that which is not swayed by temper of any kind, but alternately employs enterprise and caution, as each is useful to the particular purpose intended. Such is the excellence which saint Evremond ascribed to Marechal Turenne, who displayed in every campaign, as he grew older, more temerity in his military enterprises, and, being now, from long experience, perfectly acquainted with every incident in war, he advanced with greater firmness and security, in a road so well known to him. Fabius, says Machiavel, was cautious, Scipio enterprising, and both succeeded, because the situation of the Roman affairs, during the command of each, was peculiarly adapted to his genius, but both would have failed, had these situations been reversed. He is happy whose circumstances suit his temper, but he is more excellent who can suit his temper to any circumstances. What need is there to display the praises of industry and to extol its advantages in the acquisition of power and riches, or in raising what we call a fortune in the world? The tortoise, according to the fable, by his perseverance, gained the race of the hare, though possessed of much superior swiftness. A man's time, when well husbanded, is like a cultivated field, of which a few acres produce more of what is useful to life than extensive provinces even of the richest soil, when overrun with weeds and brambles. But all prospect of success in life, or even of tolerable subsistence, must fail where a reasonable frugality is wanting. The heap, instead of increasing, diminishes daily, and leaves its possessor so much more unhappy, as, not having been able to confine his expenses to a large revenue, he will still less be able to live contentedly on a small one. The souls of men, according to Plato, inflamed with impure appetites, and losing the body, which alone afforded means of satisfaction, hover about the earth, and haunt the places where their bodies are deposited, possessed with a longing desire to recover the lost organs of sensation. So may we see worthless prodigals, having consumed their fortune in wild debauches, thrusting themselves into every plentiful table and every party of pleasure, hated even by the vicious, and despised even by fools. The one extreme of frugality is avarice, which, as it both deprives a man of all use of his riches, and checks hospitality and every social enjoyment, is justly censured on a double account. Prodigality, on the other extreme, is commonly more hurtful to a man himself, and each of these extremes is blamed above the other, according to the temper of the person who censures, 
and according to his greater or less sensibility to pleasure, either social or sensual. Qualities often derive their merit from complicated sources. Honesty, fidelity, truth are praised for their immediate tendency to promote the interests of society. But after those virtues are once established upon this foundation, they are also considered as advantageous to the person himself, and as the source of that trust and confidence which can alone give a man any consideration in life. One becomes contemptible, no less than odious, when he forgets the duty which, in this particular, he owes to himself as well as to society. Perhaps this consideration is one chief source of the high blame which is thrown on any instance of failure among women in the point of chastity. The greatest regard which can be acquired by that sex is derived from their fidelity, and a woman becomes cheap and vulgar, loses her rank, and is exposed to every insult who is deficient in this particular. The smallest failure here is sufficient to blast her character. A female has so many opportunities of secretly indulging these appetites, that nothing can give us security but her absolute modesty and reserve. And where a breach is once made, it can scarcely ever be fully repaired. If a man behave with cowardice on one occasion, a contrary conduct reinstates him in his character. But by what action can a woman, whose behaviour has once been dissolute, be able to assure us that she has formed better resolutions, and has self-command enough to carry them into execution? All men, it is allowed, are equally desirous of happiness, but few are successful in the pursuit. One considerable cause is the want of strength of mind, which might enable them to resist the temptation of our present ease or pleasure, and carry them forward in the search of more distant profit and enjoyment. Our affections, on a general prospect of their objects, form certain rules of conduct and certain measures of preference of one above another, and these decisions, though really the result of our calm passions and propensities, for what else can pronounce any object eligible or the contrary, are yet said, by a natural abuse of terms, to be the determinations of pure reason and reflection. But when some of these objects approach nearer to us, or acquire the advantages of favourable lights and positions, which catch the heart or imagination, our general resolutions are frequently confounded, a small enjoyment preferred, and lasting shame and sorrow entailed upon us. And however poets may employ their wit and eloquence in celebrating present pleasure, and rejecting all distant views to fame, health, or fortune, it is obvious that this practice is the source of all dissoluteness and disorder, repentance and misery. A man of a strong and determined temper adheres tenaciously to his general resolutions, and is neither seduced by the allurements of pleasure, nor terrified by the menaces of pain, but keeps still in view those distant pursuits by which he at once ensures his happiness and his honour. Self-satisfaction, at least in some degree, is an advantage which equally attends the fool and the wise man. But it is the only one, nor is there any other circumstance in the conduct of life where they are upon an equal footing. Business, books, conversation, for all of these a fool is totally incapacitated, and except condemned by his station to the coarsest drudgery, remains a useless burthen upon the earth. 
Accordingly, it is found that men are extremely jealous of their character in this particular, and many instances are seen of profligacy and treachery, the most avowed and unreserved, none of bearing patiently the imputation of ignorance and stupidity. Dicaeacus, the Macedonian general, who, as Polybius tells us, openly erected one altar to impiety, another to injustice, in order to bid defiance to mankind, even he, I am well assured, would have started at the epithet of fool, and have mediated revenge for so injurious an appellation. Except the affection of parents, the strongest and most indissoluble bond in nature, no connection has strength sufficient to support the disgust arising from this character. Love itself, which can subsist under treachery, ingratitude, malice, and infidelity, is immediately extinguished by it, when perceived and acknowledged, nor are deformity and old age more fatal to the dominion of that passion. So dreadful are the ideas of an utter incapacity for any purpose or undertaking, and of continued error and misconduct in life. When it is asked whether a quick or a slow apprehension be most valuable, whether one that at first penetrates far into a subject, but can perform nothing upon study, or a contrary character, which must work out everything by dint of application, whether a clear head or a copious invention, whether a profound genius or a sure judgment. In short, what character or peculiar turn of understanding is more excellent than another? It is evident that we can answer none of these questions without considering which of those qualities capacitates a man best for the world, and carries him farthest in any undertaking. If refined sense and exalted sense be not so useful as common sense, their rarity, their novelty, and the nobleness of their objects make some compensation, and render them the admiration of mankind. As gold, though less serviceable than iron, acquires from its scarcity a value which is much superior. The defects of judgment can be supplied by no art or invention, but those of memory frequently may, both in business and in study, by method and industry, and by diligence in committing everything to writing, and we scarcely ever hear a short memory given as a reason for a man's failure in any undertaking. But in ancient times, when no man could make a figure without the talent of speaking, and when the audience were too delicate to bear such crude, undigested harangues as our extempore orators offer to public assemblies, the faculty of memory was then of the utmost consequence, and was accordingly much more valued than at present. Scarce any great genius is mentioned in antiquity who is not celebrated for this talent, and Cicero enumerates it among other sublime qualities of Caesar himself. Particular customs and manners alter the usefulness of qualities. They also alter their merit. Particular situations and accidents have, in some degree, the same influence, he will always be more esteemed who possesses those talents and accomplishments which suit his station and profession than he whom fortune has misplaced in the part which she has assigned him. The private or selfish virtues are, in this respect, more arbitrary than the public and social. In other respects, they are perhaps less liable to doubt and controversy. In this kingdom, such continued ostentation of late years has prevailed among men in active life with regard to public spirit, and among those in speculative with regard to benevolence, 
and so many false pretensions to each have been, no doubt, detected, that men of the world are apt, without any bad intention, to discover a sullen incredulity on the head of those moral endowments, and even sometimes absolutely to deny their existence and reality. In like manner I find, that, of old, the perpetual cant of the Stoics and Cynics concerning virtue, their magnificent professions and slender performances, bred a disgust in mankind, and Lucian, who, though licentious with regard to pleasure, is yet in other respects a very moral writer, cannot sometimes talk of virtue, so much boasted, without betraying the symptoms of spleen and irony. But surely this peevish delicacy, whensoever it arises, can never be carried so far as to make us deny the existence of every species of merit, and all distinction of manners and behaviour. Besides discretion, caution, enterprise, industry, assiduity, frugality, economy, good sense, prudence, discernment, beside these endowments, I say, whose very names force an avowal of their merit, there are many others, to which the most determined scepticism cannot for a moment refuse the tribute of praise and approbation. Temperance, sobriety, patience, constancy, perseverance, forethought, considerateness, secrecy, order, insinuation, address, presence of mind, quickness of conception, facility of expression. These, and a thousand more of the same kind, no man will ever deny to be excellencies and perfections. As their merit consists in their tendency to serve the person possessed of them, without any magnificent claim to public or social desert, we are the less jealous of their pretensions, and readily admit them into the catalogue of laudable qualities. We are not sensible that, by this concession, we have paved the way for all other moral excellencies, and cannot consistently hesitate any longer with regard to disinterested benevolence, patriotism, and humanity. It seems, indeed, certain that first appearances are here, as usual, extremely deceitful, and that it is more difficult, in a speculative way, to resolve into self-love the merit which we ascribe to the selfish virtues above mentioned, than that even of the social virtues, justice, and beneficence. For this latter purpose, we need but say that whatever conduct promotes the good of the community is loved, praised, and esteemed by the community, on account of that utility and interest, of which everyone partakes. And though this affection and regard be, in reality, gratitude, not self-love, yet a distinction even of this obvious nature may not readily be made by superficial reasoners, and there is room, at least, to support the cavil and dispute for a moment. But as qualities, which tend only to the utility of their possessor, without any reference to us or to the community, are yet esteemed and valued, by what theory or system can we account for this sentiment from self-love, or deduce it from that favourite origin? There seems here a necessity for confessing that the happiness and misery of others are not spectacles entirely indifferent to us, but that the view of the former, whether in causes or effects, like sunshine, or the prospect of well-cultivated plains, to carry our pretensions no higher, communicates a secret joy and satisfaction. The appearance of the latter, like a lowering cloud or barren landscape, throws a melancholy damp over the imagination. And this concession being once made, the difficulty is over, and a natural, unforced interpretation of the phenomena of human life will afterwards, we may hope, prevail, 
among all speculative inquirers. End of section 9. Recording by Lucas Balding.